Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this magazine format episode of our podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark, we are talking a ton about pizza, just absolutely ton. We got a one-minute cooking tip interview with pizza gurus. Oh, my gosh, and what's making us happy in food this week. So let us start out with pizza. Oh, you can't go wrong with pizza. And look, I'm from New York. I'm born and bred New Yorker. New York pizza is delicious, and you're all going to want to shoot me, but it is not the only pizza worth eating. I don't know. You think New York pizza is the only pizza worth eating? No, I don't think it's the only. I'm saying I'm not really sure. I don't know what I think. Here's what I think. Since, you know, this community is personal taste, we can actually get into tips for making great pizza at home. But since it's personal taste, is my thing is the thinner the crust, the better. And I have to say that's a change in my life. When I was a kid and when I was in my 20s, I used to think that really thick crust, doughy, Deep dish. Deep dish, Chicago-style pizza. I was in grad school in Madison, Wisconsin, when Pizzeria Uno came in. And, oh, my gosh. We thought that was the finest thing. <laughs> We'd ever see 500 pounds of cheese and tomato sauce in a thick dough. Because now I'm not that way anymore. Basically, now I like matzah. That's my crust. <laughs> Matzo pizza. Basically. Well, thin crust pizza is basically the Na- Napolitana pizza, right? I mean, it's the Na- from Napoli. Sure. That's the traditionally. And the thicker one is more Sicilian pizza. But, okay, that's the, whether, whether you like a thin crust or a thick crust or no crust or a cauliflower crust or whatever, whatever you like. Let's start with some tips about the dough. Okay, yeah, let's start with tips about the dough. So Buy real dough. Yeah, buy real pizza dough. And I think this is really a cracker of an idea, is that you can buy real pizza dough, and you don't have to buy crummy, pre-made, gummy crusts that are flattened out like <laughs> flatbread. You don't have to buy stuff that comes out of a tube. Mm, and giggles when you push it in its belly. <laughs> no, and here's... Here's how you can buy real pizza dough. You you don't have to make your own. You can buy your own. For example, there are a couple ways to do this. And one way that you can do this is a lot of smaller chain pizza places and independent pizza places will sell you dough. All you have to do is walk in and say, I want one pound of dough. They'll look at you strange. They won't know how to ring it up on the register, but they will do it. I can attest to this over and over again. We did this for years when we lived in New York. You can't go to the big, huge national chains and say this. No, you go to your race original, your original <laughs> Ray's, you're not really Ray's famous original. Right. Any one of those Ray's pizzas will sell you a dough. That's okay. That's in New York. <laughs> but if you don't live in New York, if you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, that's not going to work. That's but, not Ray's original. But you can buy dough at small independent pizza parlors. Just walk in and ask and they'll sell it to you. Often they have it just in lumps ready to go into the oven, you know, to be rolled out and go into the oven. And again, they're going to look at you funny. They're not going to know how to do it right. But they, they will basically sell you dough call ahead if you're in doubt but i swear to gosh i've done this all over the united states and in fact all the supermarkets around where we are in rural connecticut have real pizza dough they do they sell them in the deli section where they also sell the cold rotisserie chickens and if there are none on the shelves i just ask the person behind the the deli counter you know the same person who stocks the olive bar they're the ones and they 
always have them in the back freezer so they can always get and they always have regular and whole wheat and sometimes they sell them by the shredded cheese and dairy in mm-hmm. that place in yep. some supermarkets you can't always find this in every supermarket but a lot of high-end supermarkets sell pizza dough and i'm not speaking about stuff that thumps out of the can and i'm not speaking about the pre-baked crust i'm talking about actual dough that you press out okay i want to talk about cheese next because cheese is probably the mm-hmm. most important mm-hmm. thing besides the dough Mm. and a lot of people just go right to the pre-shredded mozzarella Mm -hmm. and that's what they use and look Mm. that's fine but there's a lot of other choices and we're going to be interviewing a real pizza maven later in the episode and we're going to get a lot of information about cheese but basically i want to tell you look for fresh mozzarella which you can slice yeah you know the balls that are sometimes mm -hmm. kept in brine sometimes not you can slice those into sections as bruce says that fresh mozzarella yes absolutely and think beyond italian mozzarella Think French cheeses, Mm. think Mm -hmm. Emmentaler, think Mm. Comte, even think goat cheese, Mm. ricotta cheese, all sorts of cheeses go good on pizza. And in our opinion, Mark's in my opinion, I'm speaking for him, every pizza should be topped with Romano or Parmesan, no matter what else you put on it. Yeah, a dry, hard grating cheese. And I'm going to add that I also think that a really, really hard-aged Manchego, I don't mean just the standard Mm. Manchego, but a really hard, like 12-month age, or really, really... Really, even two-year-aged Gouda, a hard-grating cheese also needs to go on a pie. There's hardly anything better than getting fresh ricotta and spreading it on a crust. And you could put the tomato sauce below it or above it. We should talk about the order of the ingredients. Mm, That's very important. It is very important. Um, Usually, it is sauce that goes right on the dough. That's most traditional. And I want to say something about sauce. And that is you can find jarred and canned pizza sauce and I recommend you skip that. I don't like them because they are thicker than jarred marinara which is good but they're also sweeter. There's a lot of sugar added into pizza sauce. So what I like to do Canned pizza sauce is notoriously sweet. So I like to get my favorite marinara which doesn't have any sugar added to it and I thicken that with a tablespoon or two of tomato paste. So I have the same whisk and whisk it till it's well blended. Then you have a thicker, more tomatoey sauce, and don't overdo the sauce. Just don't overdo it. A little bit of sauce goes a long way. And don't forget that you don't have to stick with jarred, we advocate jarred marinara sauce mixed together with just a little tomato paste to thicken it up. But don't forget you can also get jarred Alfredo sauce. Let me also say that red canned enchilada sauce makes a mm. fine pizza topping. Don't skip over that. There are other things that you can use, including pesto, of yeah. course, and all kinds of mm, spreadable condiments that can actually be great on pizza. I have to tell you that Bruce used to make this pizza that I loved, and it's going to seem weird, I know, but he would spread mustard on the crust and top it with thinly sliced boiled potatoes on top of that, and then he would put raclette cheese Mm. on top of that, and it was the mustard, boiled potatoes, raclette cheese, and I would always top it with green olives. Now, I know you're going to think I'm a strange child doing... (laughs) Mustard mustard raclette boiled potatoes and green olives. But to me, it was delicious, and I loved it, and it is so far from being traditional. One of my favorite pizzas from California Pizza Kitchen, when we used to go there a long time ago, 
was they topped a dough with Thai peanut sauce. Yeah. And then they put chicken and red onions and a little Yalsberg cheese. And that was such a good Don't pizza. forget, barbecue sauces of all mm. kinds work. Thicker salsas. You don't want a runny salsa. Hoisin so, works. You could put some you can duck. Put hoisin. That's right. And scallions that, and make a, like a, a mushu duck. And if you want pizza. a sweet, hot mixture, you can put a little hoisin and a little chili crisp. Mm. And then you get this sweet, hot mixture. Mm. Thai peanut sauce. You can use hot red chili sauce you can use mustard really honestly i, I would steer clear of mayonnaise but you could it's just gonna melt yeah, this gonna is like pouring oil on your yeah that's gross but <laughs> but you think pesto especially if you're going to use pesto use a thicker pesto not an oily runny pesto and don't go too sweet pesto. like don't put strawberry jelly Oh, as your sauce. Gross. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. But again, canned red enchilada sauce, um, salsa verde, mm. canned green enchilada mm. sauce. All of that works. You can you can mess up pizzas in any way you want. But we suggest the toppings go on in a certain order. So why don't you talk about that? Well, I like the dough and then the sauce and then the melty cheese, whether it's the mozzarella or the Swiss or whatever the melty cheese is. Then I put my vegetable toppings and meat toppings like cooked ground sausage or pepperoni. And then on top of the whole thing, I like my grated hard cheese like Parmesan or Asiago or Manchego. Right. It's really important, we think, to put the soft melty cheese underneath the quote-unquote toppings, whether that's, you know, sauteed ground beef or artichoke hearts or whatever you choose, sliced up sun-dried tomatoes, scallions, onions, I don't know, name it, what you choose to put on your pizza, and then put a hard grating cheese over the top of that almost to um, seal it in, as yeah. it were, as it bakes. We think that's the best way to hold the topping ingredients in place. But remember always that when you do this, that melty cheese will get superheated. The top will cool before that melty cheese is anywhere near edible. So you have to watch out for pizza burns. Now, our upcoming guest later in the episode is going to tell us even more about pizza toppings and ways to cook pizzas. And he's a professional and you're going to get some super high-end tips on perfecting your pizza at home. However, However, we're going to go to segment two before then, and that is our one-minute cooking tip. Our one-minute cooking tip this week is to use a pair of scissors and not a knife. I, this one is a big one for me. They, you, you, can, you can call them kitchen shears. Um, you can just buy nice food-grade scissors with food-grade stainless steel on them. Don't, you know, buy cheap out on this. But scissors are fabulous in the kitchen for cutting up all sorts of things. You can mince chives and other herbs right onto plates for decoration or right onto your pizza. That's right. Then you can you can cut up lettuce right off the head with a pair of scissors. Scissors make things so much easier. I know that they set kitchen shears or poultry shears changed my life when I discovered that I didn't need a knife to cut up a whole chicken. That was honestly a revelatory moment. But scissors work a million jobs in the kitchen beyond just opening envelopes. Before we get to segment three, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to this podcast. And while you're at it, go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and join the group, join the fun and the conversation. 
So up next, Bruce's interview with Francisco Migoya. He is part of the clan of people who work on the modernist cookbooks, and they are out now with their book, Modernist Pizza. You don't want to miss this interview. Today, I'm talking to Francisco Migoya, co-author of Modernist Pizza. It's the latest multi-volume cookbook set from the Modernist Kitchen team. This 1,700-plus page treatise on pizza contains 1,016 recipes and examines pizza from both historical as well as scientific perspectives. Collectively, the authors visited over 250 pizzerias around the world, so if there's a pizza out there, Francisco has eaten it. Welcome to Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Hey, great. Thanks for having me. So I think the most stunning thing about modernist pizza is that you cover every aspect of pizza from grain to cheese. And I'm going to start right there with cheese. Fresh mozzarella or aged? What's the benefits of using one over the other? So there's this uh, fixation that some pizzerias have with like flying in this fresh mozzarella from Italy every day at an exorbitant cost. And we wanted to take a look at that because it seemed like almost like pointless to the point of being ridiculous. What we did is we tested uh, fresh mozzarella. We, we made a batch um, and we tested it at different from like one hour, two hours, five hours, 10 hours, and so forth, up until like 29 days. We also used some scientific equipment to measure the results. Uh, so a, a machine called a texture analyzer and another one called an extensograph help us determine what was the, I guess, the perfect age for fresh mozzarella. Um, and it turns out that very fresh mozzarella doesn't melt very well. It doesn't stretch very well. It actually is uh, counterproductive to utilize such freshly made mozzarella. It tastes good. You know, of course you can eat it and it's going to make great caprese salad, for example. But its melting abilities on pizza are slightly different. The, the date that we specifically liked the most was 10 days after it was made, as it being at its peak of stretchability uh, and meltability. Um, so if you're at home and you made mozzarella you can either eat it right away or if you want it to be like just on point for your pizza you can wait 10 days all you have to do is wait and hold it in brine is is important too as opposed to keeping it like air drying that helps with the with the texture of the cheese so when a home cook is buying fresh mozzarella at their store clearly mm -hmm. unless they're going to you know an artisanal place where it's made right there chances are it has been made for a few days. Do you still recommend that sure. people hold on to it for a while before they put it on their pizza? The problem is that most mozzarella is not gonna say when it was made. I guess my larger point here is that you don't need to worry too much about was it made yesterday? It's not like eating oysters. It's not, it doesn't have that like sort of like very perishable shelf life. We need to just get the point across that, you know, it's it can be a few days old and in fact, the more it ages, the better it's going to melt on your pizza. So a lot of people listening love pizza. They go out for pizza, mm -hmm. they bring it in, but maybe a few have never made it or they're really new to making pizza at home. What mm -hmm. are some must-have necessary gear? What I recommend is usually tools that you can use beyond just for pizza. So first and foremost, get a scale. And I am I cannot emphasize enough how much better it is to weigh your ingredients than to use volume. Even though we, we have included... Uh, volume measurements in our book, the weight part is going to be always a lot more precise. So get a scale. And if you want to go even deeper, get a precision scale, because that is what we recommend for like small, very small quantity ingredients 
say salt yeast you're using it's like fractions of a gram so um you know these if you get both of these just talking about like forty dollars and then additionally i would get thermometers and i would get a probe thermometer and this is so that i can measure the temperature of my dough after i mix it because I want to make sure it's not coming off too hot off the mixer so I can perhaps measure the temperature of the water before I mix it into my dough because we want to make sure that it's not going too hot or too cold. We want it to be like about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So if I can measure the temperature of the water, I can assure that I'm probably going to have a really good dough when it comes off the mixer. Um, but also an infrared surface thermometer, because if you have any sort of pizza baking equi equipment at home or any kind of oven, uh, your ovens are going to probably give you a reading of the air inside the oven, not the surface you're going to be cooking your pizza on. Which brings me to the next thing I recommend, which is a baking steel or a baking stone, because most people are going to be baking in their home ovens. A lot of people may have these specialized new, like portable uh, outdoor pizza ovens, like the Uni or the Rockbox. Um, they might even have the Breville, like indoor countertop uh, pizza oven, which is actually pretty fantastic too. But most people just have their home oven and most home ovens are terrible at everything. They try to be good for so many things at multi-purpose, but they're, they're really turn out to not be good for many things, most ovens. Um, so if you have a baking steel, what you're doing is it's, it's think of it as a baking stone, but made with a much better material, which is steel. Steel, uh, the baking steel we recommend is three eighths of an inch thick. It's a very dense metal, so it absorbs heat very quickly, but it also retains it and it radiates it into your pizza just as fast. So when you're baking pizzas, they're gonna get hot really quick. They're gonna get a nice crispy base. Um, and you're gonna get that nice browning that you typically see from pizzerias, from pizzas from pizzerias where uh, they have a, a particular look. Of course, you can't make Neapolitan pizza at home if that's what you're looking for, unless you have a super high temperature oven. For the most part, you're going to be making more of uh, styles that require lower temperatures. But a baking steel is is something we highly recommend too. If you have a baking stone, that's fine. It's better than nothing. But if you're looking to, again, just take it a step further, baking steel works a lot better. I think that's probably a surprise for many of our listeners because they didn't know about baking stones. Stones absorb some of the moisture, but to bake on metal is probably a shock for a lot of people. The metal won't absorb any moisture. So what does that do to the dough when you're baking it? So, and that's an excellent point. And, and you know, most people might go for a baking stone because it is a lot cheaper. Uh, but what happens with the steel is that the steel is, it's, it's non-porous like the stone is. So what you're going to have is, is the bottom of the crust. Typically in a baking stone, you're going to have a very pale base on your pizza or bread if you're baking bread on it, uh, where baking steel is going to give us that nice, crisp, fully cooked bottom that has the same color as the exposed crust on the outside. So you're going to get a nice, crisp pizza. It's not going to be this floppy slice that you, that's going to come out of the oven. It's going to have a nice, what we call a plank, which is if you lift a, a slice, it's going to hold a straight line as opposed to drooping and sagging. Uh, that's actually called tip sag. Um, if anybody's curious about the terminology, but a pizza like Neapolitan is supposed to have tip sag. It's, it's in its nature to be like a softer pizza, but most of the styles that you can bake at home should be able to hold a plank and not sag. So transferring your pizza from your work surface to the steel in the oven, you have to use a mm -hmm. peel. What's your take, yes. metal peels or wood peels? I like metal peels, especially the ones that are perforated, because if there's any like excess flour underneath my pizza, because we tend to have to use a lot of flour to extend our pizza and so it doesn't stick to you know our surfaces uh if you have a very thin metal peel that has like the 
perforations on it, you're going to lose a lot of that excess flour. Um, and also it's easier to slide it underneath my dough. The thicker wooden feels a little bit harder for that to happen. You know, for the really, really beginners, uh, something that might make it even easier is to shape your pizza on top of a sheet of parchment paper. Um, I recommend cutting it like slightly larger than your pizza. Uh, and then you assemble everything on that. And so it's easier to slide the parchment paper onto the baking steel or baking stone stone than to try to launch it off of the peel. A lot of people find that very complicated, that motion. Uh, it takes confidence. And then if you're not confident with that movement, you're going to have a mess in your oven. You're going to have sauce all over the place. So you build the pizza on parchment. You transfer yeah. that to stone. And so you're baking the pizza on the parchment. Do you ever take the parchment out? I'm glad you said that because that, that is a, it's a good thing to do. Because I typically say most pizzas are going to take about six to seven minutes. So I always recommend halfway through that time or earlier, like at the three minute point, open the oven and rotate your pizza 180 degrees. So you get a nice even bake. But at that point where you can also do, the pizza will have set enough that you can slide the parchment paper out. This way you don't have to worry about it either like getting too dark or burning or anything. And it's so thin that it's, you know, you can leave it on the whole time if you wanted to, but at this point of rotating, you can also slide it out and it's fine because you're, you're going to be able to handle it a lot easier at this point. So let's say somebody doesn't really want to make their own dough. They're going to buy a store-bought okay. dough. One of the things that I have always said to people is if you have to buy a dough, stop in your local pizza place, ask them for a dough. Mm -hmm. So what can people do to elevate a store-bought dough? You know, I think the first thing is they're, they're probably going to give you the dough cold, um, obviously, because it's, it's got yeast and it. You know, you want to keep it from getting uh, too warm and, and fermenting. But I would say planning is important. So two hours before you plan on baking your pizza, pull it out of the refrigerator and let it reach room temperature because this is going to make it easier to stretch. It's going to wake up the yeast. So it's going to give you a better bubbling, better flavors. Um, and then, you know, I think that in a combination of like making sure that the dough is tempered and letting it sit out, you know, for that long, it's going to relax it so you can easily stretch it without tearing, without ripping it. Um, and I would say do the exact same thing for your tomato sauce, bring it up to room temperature. A uh, mistake a lot of people do is they pull it right out of the fridge. And so if you're putting cold sauce on top of even room temperature dough, it's going to bring its temperature down very dramatically. And that might give you a gummy uh, crust. So bring it to room temperature really helps. Um, and if you didn't have time to, just you can uh, nuke it in the microwave for a few seconds just to get the chill out. And that's also going to make it easier to spread it on top of the pizza, by the way, because it'll be slightly warmer. But don't get too warm. Don't go above like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. 70, 75 is ideal for spraying the sauce. Off. And I'm clarifying everyone that the zapping in the microwave for a few seconds is a sauce, not the dough. Yeah, absolutely. Because you might cook the dough yeah. if you microwave it, even for a few seconds. So I was looking through Modernist Pizza and the thing that just made my mouth water is something a lot of people aren't familiar with. That's Frico. Oh, yeah. What is it? And how do I turn my pizza into it? So Frico is basically crispy cheese. Typically, what you use is hard cheeses like Parmigiano-Reggiano or Grana Padano. There's a couple of ways you can accomplish that, which is either in a, like a nonstick pan at a medium to low temperature, long and slow, a thin layer of grated cheese. It's gonna get golden on one side, you flip it over, it gets golden on the other side. So you get this like really crispy, very flavorful, salty cheese crisp. And so you can also do that in the oven. If you do like a straight single layer, low temperature, the cheese starts to get golden, flip it over so it gets golden on the other side and you get this like very crispy cheese crust. So we were looking at ways of refreshing pizza slices because 
some people like cold pizza, I suppose, but it's also uh, some people prefer to warm it up. There's different ways of reheating pizza. The easiest is in the toaster oven, but we thought of, you know, how would, how could we make it even better than the slice that, that was, you know, fresh out of the oven. And the answer was to basically wrap it in frico, uh, wrap the slice in frico cheese. So as the cheese is melting, you put the pizza slice on top of the, of the cheese. So it's warming up the slice. And then as the cheese starts to melt, we wrap it like a blanket. Um, imagine like a burrito, but of cheese. We wrap the slice with the crispy cheese. And so you get this outside crispy cheese crust. The pizza is warmed up on the inside. It's just outrageously good. And so we thought, well, this is good for reheating pizzas, but it's also good in and of itself. Like you could use it, do it with a, a completely fresh pizza and even put toppings on top of that too, like fresh ricotta or fresh tomatoes. Or, you know, if you want to do like an arugula salad, slightly dressed it's just, it's really, really good. It's like uh, cheese encased pizza. That's worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Francisco, what's a pizza dia? <laughs> <laughs> so that was another, uh, another item that we concocted for refreshing pizzas. If you think of a, like a Neapolitan pizza, it's pretty small. It's about 12 inches. Often pizzerias will, you know, make extra pizzas, or if you buy some, uh, you might have some left over. And so we thought, you know, a good way to refresh this pizza is to basically just fold it in half and put it in a, one of those like panini presses and just press it on it. And it just it got crispy on the outside. The cheese remelted on the inside. It became different than a Neapolitan pizza, but and more closely like a quesadilla. So it's, it's a way of not wasting pizza, but also a different way of having a Neapolitan pizza if you prefer to have it in that in that format. Fantastic. So let's talk about toppings. Do you mm -hmm. think there can never be too many? Yeah, I mean, it really is a, you know, you have to think about toppings pre-bake, mid-bake, or post-bake. And a lot of pizzas can handle a lot of post-bake toppings, but some, if, if you overload it too much at the beginning, like let's say you're doing like a veggie pizza, and just pile it on with vegetables. Some of the vegetables are going to steam and not even cook by the time the crust is cooked. Uh, so there is such a thing as too much. But if you have a fully baked pizza and you want to top it with salad or other fresh items like mortadella or prosciutto or other temperature sensitive items post-bake, it can hold a lot of toppings. Um, so there's a balance there of, you know, however much you can get away with. And also, you know, topping cheese does include toppings. So is there such a thing as too much cheese? It could be. I mean, if you go to Argentina, Buenos Aires, the pizza there is completely covered in cheese. I mean, it's a slice that you cut a slice and there's so much cheese that it completely traps the slice and meat. There, there, there is just an abundance of cheese. But, and it's good. I mean, but you have one slice or two and you're done. And so it really is up to the person uh, who's, who's putting the toppings on it, but also thinking about, are these toppings going to cook all the way? Are they going to steam my pizza? Or is there going to be a negative effect? And so I would say always err on the side of caution. It's always better to do a little bit less than you think is going to be enough. Uh, and you can always bake another pizza. You know, I always see it as our recipes call for at least four. You can make at least four pizzas. So your first one can be your trial one. And then if you want to put more, you put on more. So one final question. What's your favorite pizza? I answer this question uh, hesitantly because I like pretty much 99.9% .9 of all pizza styles. I think that my answer is mostly about like, what is the most practical? Which one would I make most often? Uh, which one is most convenient? Which one's easy to teach? Which one's good for groups? And my answer is typically a thin crust pizza is the one that uh, it's my go-to, mostly because it 
if I'm in a hurry, I can have a dough ready to make a pizza with in a couple of hours. It cooks pretty quickly. It has a crispy base. I love a crispy texture. And, you know, it hold, it can hold, you know, a good amount of toppings, but it's, it's a pizza that you can eat in a whole one by yourself and not feel like you've eaten too much or like uh, you've somehow uh, overdone it. So it's, it's nice and light and it just works really nicely for, for making a bunch at a time too. So fabulous. Francisco Migoya, co-author of Modernist Pizza. The book will be out in October. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and giving us fabulous pizza pointers on cooking with Bruce and Mark. Hey, thank you so much. That was fantastic. I learned a lot. <laughs> Good. I, I learned, learned a lot more. too. Bruce and I have written a book, Pizza Bake It, Grill It, Love It, in which we actually, every recipe is designed for the pizza to be either made on the grill or in the oven. That I learned a lot. Just I am so him. getting rid of my pizza stones now and buying a pizza steel. I am like the only way I'm ever cooking pizza is on a pizza steel. Okay, last segment. What's making us happy in food this week? You get to go first. I like milk. Milk. Oh my god. Milk is making me happy. Oh, okay. Now wait. Let's explain <laughs> what milk is before everybody grosses out because the name just sounds disgusting. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It, who came up with this product name? But the go. For it. It's a small family-run business, oh, I know. and it's milk alternatives. And I like the almond milk. They also make oat milk and all sorts of milks. But they're milk not alternative. They're not sweetened, and I kind of like that. That's because, the part. And they're not thickened. They're not gloppy. They're not sweet. It just tastes like liquid oats and liquid almonds. That's the part. I recorded the audiobook for my memoir, Bookmarked, a few weeks ago, and Bruce sent me a bunch of lunches and breakfast. He was very kind because I had to be away for a week, essentially, recording the audiobook. And he sent me a bunch of lunches and breakfast and all this stuff so that I would have stuff to eat in my Airbnb before I went to the studio every day. And he sent me along oat milk. I said, oh, get me some oat milk for my French press. Okay, fine. He he unwittingly bought sweetened oat milk. And the first morning I had it my coffee, I was like, oh, my God, what the heck is this thing? So milk is not sweet. Not sweet. It's milk. It is amazing. Okay, what's making me happy in food this week are dinner parties. And Bruce and I are back to having dinner parties. And I'm going to let you talk about it for a minute because Bruce made a dish for a dinner party last week with, yes, foie gras that absolutely absolutely knocked me out. Now, I want to stop and just say that Bruce and I mostly write at this point mass market cookbooks, cookbooks about air fryers and instant pasta and all that kind of thing. But Bruce's art form is creating a food in the kitchen that's way beyond anything that would appear in a book. So you made this foie gras dish with apples and cashews. Just say what it was. So I wanted the foie gras to be on a base of something. So I started by cooking kamut berries, which is a form of wheat it's an ancient karasin wheat grain and i boiled the kamut berries and then when they were done i put them in a skillet with some bacon fat and toasted them up and i threw in some laksa curry paste and i just got them sort of flavorful and amazing and delicious okay so that was the bottom then i took apples because we've been picking apples here in new england and i peeled them and i cored them and i cut them into thick two inch rings and I still had some bacon fat back in the cast iron skillet, and I caramelized the apple, so the thick apple rings, in bacon until fat. they were browned and slightly softened. And mm. I set that caramelized apple ring on the bed of the curried kamut. Then mm. on top of that, I seared foie gras, and I put a piece of foie gras. Then to top it all off, I fried up some cashews 
with a different kind of curry paste and I tossed them with diced grapes and sprinkled the spiced <laughs> cashews and grape mixture over the foie, sitting on the caramelized apple, sitting on the laksa curry. <laughs> See why it made me so happy. It's so insane. And I also hadn't really ever had a truly savory, and it was, despite the apples and grapes, a savory foie gras dish. And it was amazing all the way through. And it made me totally happy this week in food. So that's the show. Thanks for tuning in. By the way, it would be great if you give us a rating. We could really use it in the analytics. If you just drop down to the bottom of the Apple menu, you'll see a place to drop a rating. Even a review would be lovely. You just say, hey there, Bruce Mark, I love you. <laughs> that would oh, be all right. We love you too. <laughs> and you can subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.